This morning we conclude a series that we've been in through the summer called Pictures of Salvation. And uh, we're going to start the book of Acts next week together. As we wrap up, I want to look at another character, a, a type of character, a type of man that we haven't studied yet. And I was thinking one of the perfections of Jesus Christ is that Um, he draws all types to himself. He loves all types of people. We don't. We like people that are like us. We like people that make our lives comfortable. We like people that remind us of ourselves. But sometimes those are the people we hate the most as well. We're very fickle. Jesus, throughout the course of his ministry, attracted so many different types of people. We've looked at men and women that were tax collectors, political figures, harlots, native Israelites, Moabites, uh, military heroes, so many different types of people. And this morning, yet again, we find ourselves looking into the story, the account of a different sort of man. His name is Nicodemus, and he's a Pharisee. Pharisee is, a, is, a, is a, a word many of you have likely heard, and we're going to talk about what a Pharisee was in just a moment. Um, but first, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Open your Bibles up to John chapter 3. We're going to look at the first 21 verses of John chapter 3. The word of the Lord. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of the things we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into it into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be magnified, manifested rather, as having been wrought in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you are not just interested in those that are like yourself. That Jesus wasn't just interested in those that were like him. None of us are naturally. None of us are pure. None of us are holy. None of us are, 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 are perfect. None of us are selfless. Father, he came and poured himself out. Light into darkness came for our benefit because he loved us. And we give you thanks for this. We worship you for this. Thank you for the love and kindness which you have shown on us who are far from you, distant and different from you. Father, I pray that as we come together week over week, that your Holy Spirit would continue to draw us closer to you, to make us look more like you, more like your Son, that we would act more like him, speak more like him, think more like him, think in his words rather than our own. I pray that he would make us a holy people. I pray that as we look into your word, we would be changed this morning. I also pray for those here that are like Nicodemus. They're drawn to something about Jesus. They've heard and see things that intrigue them, and yet they don't have a concept for the things which Jesus says. Lord, I pray that everyone here would be able to say that I have been born again. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, amen. 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 You may be seated. The passage that we read together is extremely important. Many of you, whether you grew up in the church or are a Christian right now or not, have likely heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. A very familiar passage. But for many of you, it's likely true also that the surrounding narrative and the words that are, are said by Jesus before and after that are less known. There are many passages in Scripture uh, that are, are less known as, to us as well, but none that are more important to know than this passage. No, nowhere in the Bible do we find a stronger statement about the nature of the new birth, which Jesus says is imperative, it's essential. Nowhere else do we find teaching about the nature of salvation by faith in the Son of God than we do in this passage where Jesus is speaking at the beginning of his ministry to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. You can be ignorant of many things about Christianity. You can be ignorant of all things that would fall under the, the formal heading of theology. But you may not be ignorant of the realities that take place in this chapter, the truths that are said by Jesus in this chapter. You can't be ignorant of those and be a part of the kingdom of God. And so it's very important that we pay attention, that we study this chapter, that we love it, and that we seek to know it. Who was Nicodemus? We're going to start by talking a little bit about Nicodemus the man, and then after that we're going to talk about, make some applications from, one central application from 
what Jesus says to Nicodemus in response to him coming to the Lord. But before we consider Jesus' response, I'd like to talk about Nicodemus the man. Who was Nicodemus? Well, we are given his station, his spot in life, his occupation, his title, even before we're given his name. He's a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were religious leaders at the time in the New Testament and and in the Old, but very prominent. They weren't the only types of, of religious leaders. There were others. But they are at least in in the New Testament, they are the most prominent in the New Testament era. They boasted of being the expounders of the Old Testament law. They acted as if they were in possession of the deep and hidden meanings of all the scriptures. A man would grow up and decide that he wanted to join the Pharisees, but in order to do that, you needed to make that decision, and then go and take a vow, a pledge, before others. And they would be witnesses of the fact that you would vow to spend the rest of your life observing the details of the scribal law. And that's what they gave their lives to doing. They observed every little, the Bible says jot and tittle, every little marking in the grammar of the Hebrew text, every little smudge of ink. They would study it to discern what it meant for them. And they extracted from it an infinite number of rules and regulations to govern every conceivable situation in life. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees did together. The scribes did a little bit of different work than the Pharisees, but together in the Scripture, in the New Testament, throughout we read the scribes and the Pharisees. They are taken as a unit This is their work. For example, God said, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On the Sabbath day, you are to rest after God's pattern of creation, working six days and then on the Sabbath he rested. You are to rest, you and your household. Not just you, but your your servants even your oxen, you are to rest and to replenish and to, and to do my work on this day. I've given you six days to do your work, but on the seventh, you're to do my work. You're to rest. You're to worship. That's what God had said. But the Pharisees, the scribes, were not content with those words. They weren't content with simple obedience. They spent hour after hour, generation after generation, defining what work was listing all of the many things that could be done and could not be done on the Sabbath day. Now, in the, in the, in, in the Mishnah, which is uh, the codified scribal law of the Old Testament, the section that talks about God's commandment regarding the Sabbath day extends 24 chapters. In the Jewish writings about that commandment, there are 24 chapters laying out what God meant by saying, thou shalt not honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, you shall not work on the Sabbath day. If you even want to go further than that, the Talmud is sort of like a commentary on the Mishnah. And there are different versions of it around the world. But the one in Jerusalem has 64 columns of text explaining, commentating on the Mishnah, which has uh, 20 four chapters on the singular command of God. Okay. They would write things in these 
writings such as, you could not tie a knot on the Sabbath day. That was to work. But to tie a knot, again, had to be defined, just like everything else. So you would be guilty if you tied what was called a, a camel knot, or you would be guilty if you tied a sailor's knot, or untied for that matter. But if a knot could be tied with one hand, it was legal. It was fine. It was sanctioned. Take this sort of thing and apply it to every conceivable area of life that the Old Testament speaks to. And this is what the Pharisees gave themselves to. Their influence was so pervasive that even today, if you've been to some big cities, New York or Chicago, and some of the areas that tend to be Jewish, if you get in an elevator on the Sabbath day, some of them have a Sabbath day mode that they kick into. And on the Sabbath day, because you can't press certain buttons, that elevator is programmed to go floor to floor all day long and to stop at every one. Therefore, you can still travel, but you, still, you don't need to work. You don't need to break any of these commandments by, by pressing a button to go somewhere. Or uh, years ago, I was on Facebook Marketplace, and I wanted to get my wife a really nice big stove. And uh, it was a big fancy one. And before, I, I, I do love my wife, but I thought I, she talked me out of it. it. We didn't have the money to spend on it, and I, we would have been foolish at the time. But for a moment, I was going to buy it. And I remember them making a point about this stove, that it had a Sabbath mode. And I thought, what in the, is this not a sign or what, baby? <laughs> but then as I, I Googled, what is this? What it basically was, was some mode you could set up the day before so that it would cook your food for you with, so that you don't have to press any buttons. Again, this is the same idea. Like, this is how inculcated this pharisaical type of lifestyle was in Jewish society. This is what the Pharisees did. This is how they lived. The scribes continuously extrapolated new rules from God's law, and the, and, and the Pharisees dedicated their lives to keeping these rules, or at least claiming to. And here's why. This is, this is important. Listen. They did this because they thought that in keeping the rules, actually, in keeping all these rules, they actually controlled God. Now, of course, I just said they did this so that they could control God. Yes, I, I said that. Now, they wouldn't say it in, in so many words. They wouldn't have expressed it that way. But that is what they sought to do by defining exactly what every nuance of every sentence of the Old, law, of the Old Testament law said. Now, you probably recognize when this has happened in your life, a relationship, a situation. This still happens. Uh, have you ever been in a conversation with somebody who is perpetually interrupted by somebody else, maybe a spouse or a father. You know, I, I've talked with young men who are constantly interrupted with their dads, uh, answered for by their dads, sentence after sentence after sentence. And what I realized is often those interruptions are not simply trying to explain or clarify, but those interruptions by other people are actually for the point of controlling the conversation or the situation, trying to steer towards certain things or away from other things. That is often what happens when we that's how we often try and control things, by defining things down and interjecting and making little comments here and there. And It's not innocent. We have an agenda. The Pharisees had an agenda too. They thought that they could control God so that the, 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 the young man Jesus spoke to, Jesus says, have you, 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 know, you, you have to keep the whole law. And he says, oh, I have my whole entire life. Now, he, he wasn't making a claim to perfection. What he was saying is he kept the whole law. He had, God couldn't, you know, he... 
he certainly was good with God because he has done everything he needed to do, as, as he defined it, as the Pharisees defined it. So this is the Pharisees. This is the Pharisees. This is Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, and not just that. It's important to note that it says, hmm, Nicodemus, Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. He was a chief Pharisee, a ruler of his nation. And I take that to mean that he's likely a part of the Sanhedrin, which was the, the, the council of 70 members that acted as the Supreme Court over the Jewish nation, not just those in Jerusalem, but throughout the whole world. It would be this group, this Sanhedrin, these 70 members that Jesus would have that sham trial in the night with three years later. They drug him before the Sanhedrin. It's this group. This is Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him by night in the darkness, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. He's a Pharisee. He comes at night. He's drawn to Jesus because what he's because of what he's seen him do. He's intrigued by the things that he's seen and by the things that he's heard. The previous chapter, in chapter 2, verse 23 says this, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, uh, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover, during the feast, many people believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. So Jesus is performing miraculous signs in the city of Jerusalem. It's Passover time, so things are bustling and busy. And there are many that observe what Jesus does and put their faith in him, believe in his name. Nicodemus came to inquire a little more about who this Jesus was and what he was really all about. But he didn't want to know as others, uh, he, he didn't want others, uh, pardon me, he didn't want others to know that he was coming. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus. As a Pharisee, he had far too much on the line to risk being ostracized or accused by his Pharisees, no less the Sanhedrin. Like all of the Pharisees, Nicodemus has a high opinion of himself and he doesn't want to lose part of that elevation by being seen with this man who his peers were quickly learning to despise. In chapter 2, it's the, one of the instances of Jesus driving all the money changers out of the temple. He made a lot of enemies that day with the religious crowd by going into the temple and saying, what are you doing turning the house of God into a marketplace? Get out. Very quickly, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, remember. Very quickly, the Pharisees are learning to hate Jesus. Nicodemus is interested. He's intrigued. But he doesn't want to go during the day. He doesn't want to be seen by other people. Anybody who says he went at night because he knew how busy teachers were and he wanted to, it's just baloney. It's just, it's not reading the Bible. I mean, every time Nicodemus is mentioned, it mentions the man who came by night for a reason. It's just an incredulous reading of the text. He's ashamed. He doesn't want to lose what he has. And then the third thing, Pharisee came at night. He did not believe. He says, Rabbi, teacher, 
we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, what I want to say is this is a very cautious statement, a very safe statement. He knew that Jesus was someone quite remarkable. He was convinced of it by the miracles he'd seen. It may have crossed his mind that this man might be the Messiah. Being a leader of the Pharisees, he certainly would have been acquainted with John the Baptist, who had come before Jesus, proclaiming of one who was going to come after him, whose feet of his sandals he was unworthy to untie, who was going to do far greater things than he had done. But right now, in this moment, this is all that Nicodemus can manage. It's all that he's going to commit to. He wasn't going to make any stronger statement than teacher, rabbi. We know that you have come from God as a teacher because of the signs which we've seen you do. Now, it's true that he's come from God, but he's not in the sense that, that Nicodemus is willing to allude to. It's true that the, all the prophets of the Old Testament were also sent by God. It's true that even the religious leaders were given to the people by God through the tribe of Levi. He admits that, but he's not yet willing, willing to, to admit that this is the Messiah who's come as the Son of God, which is altogether different. There are many today who stop right here where Nicodemus stops. Right here at that sentence, then they never go further. There are many who have no problem admitting that Jesus is, is a great teacher, a nice guy, a good role model, a good example. But they aren't willing to admit that he is the Savior, their Savior, no less. Perhaps this is the way that some of you have viewed God. Perhaps some of you have viewed Jesus this way, like some other version of a, you know, I, in high school, you know, everyone had the Gandhi quotes, right? Be the change, you know, that was the, the quote everyone wore. And... Um, some people think Jesus is just some other variation of that sort of figure. Not at all. And Jesus is going to confront that idea right here. Jesus tells Nicodemus that only those that look to him, uh, those that only look to him rather as a teacher cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. It is only those who look to him as the very son of God, the begotten of the Father, that will enter, that will be saved. Now it's encouraging that uh, you know, I'm not totally downing Nicodemus here. I'm saying that he, his statement is cautious and he, he does not yet believe. But it is encouraging that Nicodemus comes. Coming, though, isn't all that's necessary. We see the state of his heart when Jesus answered him and said, Truly, 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 listen, Nicodemus. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember that Jesus, we, we already said, Jesus has been doing all sorts of signs and miracles and many are believing in his name. And Nicodemus has seen these things and th that he cites what he saw as part of the reason why he's coming to him. He says, I've seen what you've done. I've seen that you've come from God because of your signs. And in response, Jesus is pulling out the carpet from under Nicodemus at this point. He says, you think, you think you can see? You can't see anything unless you've been born again. No one can see the kingdom unless they've been born again. And so now, with that as, as preface, I want to turn and consider this statement that we've just read 
by Christ and some of the other things he'll go on to say. This is Nicodemus, and now Christ's response. If you think about the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, there isn't a more wonderful or reassuring passage in the Bible about God's love for us. But if you read this passage honestly, if you think, what is God saying to me? And you try to put yourself into the position of Nicodemus because we're in his position, not God's. Then what you have to recognize is that there is a tension that is shot right through the heart of this passage. Jesus is certainly going after Nicodemus' lack of faith in him as the exclusive, only son of God. And he hammers the necessity of being born again. And here's the tension. Without ever really answering Nicodemus' specific questions, you recognize that? You, you sense that as we read the passage? Nicodemus asks three times various questions about what Jesus is saying. And Jesus did not ignore him. We'll talk about that at the end. But he did not answer Nicodemus' questions. And that should be unnerving to Nicodemus. And it was. We certainly can sense his sort of exasperation or frustration with himself and with what Jesus is saying even in the text. And I hope that we wrestle with a little bit of this tension as well. We must. We must. There are four things that I want to point out from the passage as it relates to salvation, and I'm going to give them to you right now. We'll walk through them. Uh, First, it's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of morality. The second is, it's not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of schooling. Third, it's not a matter of your heritage. Fourth, it it is a matter of, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of morality. You must be born again. Think about all that Nicodemus had done. Think about the vow he took and how it regulated his days. If we achieve good standing by our own rule-keeping, by our own zeal, by our own set of convictions, by our own morality, then Nicodemus should have made it. His whole life was geared toward living out the little jots and tittles of the scribal law. And he wasn't even an entry-level Pharisee, as we've already said. Jesus, Jesus titles him the teacher of Israel. Not a teacher of Israel, not a great teacher, but the teacher of Israel. If peace with God is going to be achieved through us pacifying him through religious observance, through religious lingo, through merely just reading an app every day and checking it off the list, Nicodemus would have been the guy to do it. This past year, um, I unfortunately have um, had a couple of kids that have had minor surgeries. And those surgeries have been done to correct potential issues. And it's really quite amazing what can be accomplished through surgery today. You know, um, when uh, Lucia's head injury was revised, it just is amazing. She busted her head open, and because of various circumstances, we needed to let it heal open. So the first time it healed open, and it, was, it looked pretty gnarly. And then it was revised by Dr. Hignati, a plastic surgeon in Toledo. And the, the way it looked before and after is just astounding. It's just 
incredibly different. Um, we've had other surgeries done, uh, a little surgery on a finger, and uh, it's just incredible what they can do through surgery, how they can fix problems through surgery. I once, I worked as a roofer for a while, and, um, and I, I can't remember his name, but there was that guy who was, couldn't be killed. You know, I'm looking at Kevin, Bubba. Everyone's Bubba. If, if somebody was kind of a, I don't remember his name, but this is the kind of guy that shoots himself with a nail gun in his, like, calf and pulls it out and keeps going, you know, like that kind of guy, you know. Well, he had been in a car accident. He had been driving in the country and had uh, gone through the windshield or gone, he had gone through the windshield. And he, I remember hearing this story, and there might be exaggeration, but the scar points to there being no exaggeration. He'd gone through the windshield, and he had sliced his neck from ear to ear, up past the ear. And he had been thrown into a ditch. And this is the kind of guy that the skin on his face had peeled up over his eyes in the ditch. And he, I remember him telling me that he, he, once he gained conscious awareness of himself, he's bleeding. He pulled the skin back down over his face, climbed out of the ditch, got a car, and went to the hospital. And he couldn't talk well. I remember giving him a ride one time. The way he ate was he'd like spit. I remember he, he asked if we could stop and get a cheeseburger from the Wendy's uh, on, in the east side, right across the International Bridge. And, I, and I we stopped there and got some food. And I, I just remember the spittle and the food just spitting out all over my dashboard as he ate. Because it, whatever he had damaged hadn't been able to heal the correct way. You know, he'd kind of spit when he'd talk and stuff. And the reason I say this is to say he actually was a living, talking, fairly, I'm not going to say normal, but fairly normal individual who's married. Um, he had surgery on that thing, and he lived. It fixed a huge problem. I mean, you know, surgeries are incredible, incredible. They can, t they can fix things that are really, really, really bad. The reason I share these things is just to say this. Many of us think that we just need surgery. Many of us think that we have bad things, scars, issues, tears, clotted arteries, that simply need to be removed or repaired or revised. And that is what makes us good with God. And it's very important that we recognize that that isn't what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, you need surgery. He doesn't even say, you're real bad and you're going to need an amputation. He says, you need to be born again. Nothing less than a new birth will do. I can go to the hospital and get a surgery. I can try to fix my problems. I can try to do the right thing. I can try and kick the habit. I can get different friends. But I can't make myself born again. Some of you this morning are frustrated because you keep falling into the same habits and sinful patterns. And I say to you, for some of you, I don't think it's a matter of just you need more resolve. I think you need to be born again. I actually think you just need to know the Lord who, who gives you a new heart. You're trying to address the symptoms. You're trying to go for surgery. And you're, and you're, you're, you're looking to the wrong thing. You need to be born again. This is, the de this is a desperate set of uh, comments to Nicodemus, somebody who's used to such control, such power, such ability to achieve what he sets out to do, such self-discipline. Jesus is telling him here that he must do something, uh, he, <laughs> actually the opposite, 
there must be something done to him that he cannot do. Something must be done to him that he cannot do himself. He must be born again. Second, it's not a matter of your schooling. It's not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of what you know. You have to be born again. If it were a matter of what you know, if faith were a cerebral mental exercise, if it were a matter of intelligence, then Jesus would not have told Nicodemus that he was still lacking, that he couldn't see the kingdom of God, that he couldn't enter the kingdom of God. After all, Nicodemus had approached Jesus as a teacher, one rabbi to another. Great rabbi, great teacher. And Jesus had actually reciprocated by calling him the teacher of Israel. No doubt Nicodemus knew the scriptures very well. Just a few chapters after this interaction with Nicodemus, Jesus is going to say to the religious leaders these words, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. They knew the scriptures very well. And yes, it's good to read the Bible. But if you're looking to the word for something that only, the, and, the, and the words, the text, and the knowledge, the knowledge rather, that all, for something that only Christ can supply, you're mistaken. You might know a whole lot about Christianity. You might know the Bible very well. You know, it was, it was a rebuke to me as a freshman when I started taking Hebrew um, at Bowling, uh, I'm sorry, Greek at um, University of Bowling Green. I, I had a great prof. And he was on me to know Greek really well because he said, if I'm going to be a pastor, I should know it better than him. And he, and he said, and I'm an atheist, you know. So that was the, sort of the dividing line. <laughs> but he knew the Bible really well. He was very intelligent. He had a lot of it memorized. Sent his kids to St. John's, but didn't believe any of it. Didn't believe any of it. If you think that your eternity is based your security in eternity is based on what you know rather than who you know. And I'm not trying to be trite there. I'm saying if you think it's based on what you know rather than our relationship with, with, the, with the Son of God who has come down so that he might have a relationship with you, you're not part of the kingdom of God. Third, it's not a matter of heritage. You must be born again. Think about this. A devout Jew Nicodemus presumed that his place in God's kingdom was assured by virtue of his race and, condi and his condition. He was circumcised. He was a Jew. He was born into the nation of God's people. He was a son of Abraham. You think about that. And you think about the, 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 the crushing of his whole paradigm of reality. What does it mean? You're telling me I have to be born again? Don't you know? I'm not a Hellenistic Jew. I was born a Jew. Jesus says, no, you need to be born again. I was born into a Christian home, raised with my siblings to be hardworking, to have integrity, to honor the Bible. And one of the things that I've heard my whole life, and if you were raised in a similar environment, I'm sure you've heard it too. One of the things I've heard my whole life is that, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Now, if you know me from a long time ago, I pretty much only hear that I was a bad person. But, you know, from those that, you know, by and large, people comment and say I'm a good person. There are a lot of earthly benefits from acting in ways that are right. I was taught in the house that I grew up in. Hard work, respect, honesty. But are those things enough? Just being born into the family that I was born into and, and thereby taught. Um, I was talking with a nurse this past week this is 
pertinent to the point. Uh, a nurse who knew my sister-in-law, Audrey, and, and as uh, we were together talking, she made the comment about Audrey, Audrey is the kindest human being I've ever met, you know, which is a, a sweet. Audrey is wonderful and kind. If you know her, she's sweet and kind. Now, if she's not the kindest human being you've ever met, it's because her mother is, probably. But honestly, Audrey is that way because she was born into a family that had that expectation and that raised her that way. But is that enough? Is it enough to be born a Jew? Is it enough to be born into a family that brings you here? Was it enough for Nicodemus? It's not in and of itself. No, there are blessings attached to it, but it's not. It's not enough. Jesus says Nicodemus has to be born again. He has no concept for what this means. He thought he had already been born once and that was good enough. No, you must be born again. Never discount the blessing of being born into a family where the word of God is taught and loved. But here's the thing, and I'm, I, I'm specifically speaking to those that are younger here right now. Don't make the mistake of thinking that faith is hereditary. Don't make the mistake of thinking that your faith, your standing with, with Jesus in this moment, like Nicodemus in his moment, is based on something that you were born into, that it comes through your family line. Just because you were born into a Christian home does not mean that you're exempt from the need that Nicodemus had. This morning, Jesus lays out an opportunity to you to consider whether you've been born again. And you might think it's wrong to do so. I grew up in a Christian home. I recognize that. It feels dangerous or scary to ask yourself, am I born again? But it is only wrong to never do so. If you've been born again, you're never going to be hurt by examining yourself. You're never going to be set back if you seek to make your calling and your election sure. This is, these are the words that Scripture exhorts us to. Make your calling and election sure. True salvation cannot be shaken. God's work in your life cannot be shaken. But Satan often acts by counterfeit. Satan often allows you to look like other people and to do the other things, and, and so he allows you to think, I'm good because I look like them, I talk like them, I listen to that, I don't do this. And while all those things might be good things, I'm not disparaging them, if they are not receiving, if they're not, if they're not taking place because they're connected to the fact that you've been born again, it's, not worth, it's worthless, it's no good for you. So Jesus lays out an opportunity for you to consider this morning, are you born again? Have you come to be born again by the Holy Spirit? What does this mean? Well, it means a lot of things that we're not going to go into this morning, but I sort of want to just let you wrestle with the tension of that. Think about the first time you were born and all the implications of that. Personality and loves and abilities, desires, character, habits, language, commitments, all these things come as a result of you being born to a mother and a father who shaped those things. And now Jesus is saying, no, you need to be born by the Holy Spirit. So you start thinking about the implications of being born again in your life. It's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of schooling or knowledge. It's not a matter of your heritage, where you were born. What must take place for you to gain entrance into Christ's kingdom? This is the essential question. This is the essential question for anybody who 
actually believes what the Bible says, that this life is not the end, but actually it's just a very, very brief vapor, a very brief period before the rest of eternity. What must take place for you to enter, enter Christ's kingdom? Well, it's no surprise by this point. You must be born again, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I, he's speaking to Nicodemus, but I hope he's speaking to some of you right now. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus is amazed. He doesn't understand. He has no barometer for understanding what Jesus is saying. This shatters him, whether he shows it or not. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born by the Spirit. Jesus uses this analogy about the work of the Spirit being like the wind because one of the things he's saying to Nicodemus, he's saying, how can this be? Tell me how it's done. Tell me. He says, you can't do anything about it. In a sense, he says, the wind blows where it wishes. You can't control it. I remember I would, we wanted to go paragliding in Kator, Aaliyah and I, when we were there. And I remember being just hamstrung by the conditions of the hour. We had arranged with somebody to take us up to the top of the mountain and run off of it, like normal people do. But there was all these variations of, oh, well, we might do it here, we might do it this time, we might do it this time, and it was like back and forth through texting until we like settled on, okay, the wind pattern is going to be like this, it's going to be a good time, come here. We did it at that time, we were dictated to by the wind, is what I'm trying to say. We couldn't just ride it, <laughs> paraglide like you can ride a ride at Cedar Point. Even Cedar Point is dictated to by the weather, the wind. It's uncontrollable. The Holy Spirit's work is like the wind. Nicodemus can't control it. There's no controlling the wind. There's no controlling the Holy Spirit. We must be born again. We can't give birth to ourselves. The Holy Spirit is the one who must give birth to us. This is a struggle for Nicodemus. He was born a Jew from a merit standpoint. He did all the right things, but none of that is good enough. He needs something that is outside of himself, something that's outside of his control or ability or to obtain by his power or money or status. What is all that up against the wind? Though we have no reason to believe that Nicodemus was born again when he first came to Jesus this night, we have every reason to believe that God was working in him and that he was coming closer and closer to faith in Christ, to belief that Christ was the Messiah, the Son of God. After all, you know, you think about the idea of new birth. Birth is always preceding, preceded by time in the womb. There's always things before it. God is working, doing things through other people, actually, to lead you there. So how is one born again? If it's the work of the Spirit, and that's something you can't control, shouldn't we be frustrated and confused like Nicodemus? Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again, and he goes to say that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us new birth and that we aren't in control of the Holy Spirit. It goes where it wishes. He acts upon what he decides, just like the wind. So what are you to do? Is Jesus posing to us an unsolvable quandary, a problem that we can do nothing about? Well, like I said at the beginning of our sermon, Jesus never explicitly answers Nicodemus' questions. It's unsettling. But he does answer Nicodemus. 
He does. It's right there. He does give Nicodemus every reason to leave with hope and with joy and with feeling loved and not rejected. Feeling the power of God. Not his own power, but the power of God. As Moses was lifted up, the serpent, uh, as Moses lifted up, rather, the serpent in the wilderness, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes will in, uh, will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. How is one to be born again? How is one to enter the kingdom of heaven? How is one to see the kingdom of God's people? Through belief in his son. He who believes in him will not be judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does, e who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And there you have to recognize that Nicodemus felt very condemned and guilty for standing in the darkness. What was Jesus' answer to Nicodemus? What did he say? Jesus says that God loves him and God loves you so much that he sent his son to atone for him who could do nothing in and of himself. He sent Christ because you are unable to do anything. That's the unsettling part. You can't do anything. But the joyful, sweet, beautiful part is that that's the reason why Christ was on earth. Because he could do something. And he calls you to believe in him. Four times he commands us to believe in the Son of God. Once he says that those who are condemned will be condemned by God because they failed to believe. It is God's to cause you to be born again by the Holy Spirit. But it is yours to believe in Jesus Christ whom he sent. What is belief in Jesus? If that's what you got to do, what is that? Nicodemus certainly believed that Jesus existed. He was standing right in front of him. Certainly he believed that Jesus was a good person. We already talked about that. Lots of people believe that Jesus is a good person and that he was a historical figure. But Jesus said that Nicodemus had not believed in him. He tells Nicodemus over and over that to be truly born again, he must believe in him. Was Nicodemus ever born again? Did Nicodemus ever come to the point where he believed. Not in this passage. The text moves on. But approximately three years later, after this conversation, Jesus is going to lay down his life, go to the cross, and be crucified. Just as he said to Nicodemus here. And it says that Joseph of Arimathea, a man, came to care for Jesus' body, and he went before Pilate and asked Pilate, can I have Jesus' body? to prepare it for burial. And in verse 39 of chapter 19 of John, it makes this one statement, this one beautiful statement about this man, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, 
who had first come to him, Jesus, by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. Here is where we see Nicodemus' belief in Jesus. It's in the fact that he loves him. He loves Jesus back. Nicodemus is no longer relying on his works, his education, his background, his heritage, his birthright. In seeing Jesus' death on the cross, he has come to love him. No doubt, I was thinking about this throughout this week, as he watched Jesus over those three years of ministry, he was pondering in his mind and God was working in him. But when he saw Jesus on the cross and he saw love for those that hated him, love for those that put him there, his mind had to have been drawn back to the words that Jesus spoke to him. And he realized in that moment the condescending love of Christ. Jesus didn't tell him he was going to have to die. He just said the Son of Man was going to have to be lifted up like Moses lifted the serpent. But he had to have seen Jesus and recognized that Jesus had died for him. And in that moment, he learned to love Jesus. In that moment, he decided that though he could not be born again of his own work, he could believe in the one whom God sent. And that's a powerful thing. I want to remind us that for a long time, Nicodemus watched from afar. But in the end, he was born again. There, were, there was a man that was very, very close to Jesus throughout his whole public ministry. His name was Judas. In the end, he was not born again. And so I call us this morning to, to make your calling, your, your election sure with God. I ask, have you been born again? That is the central question I'm pressing upon you this morning. Have you experienced the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to transform your heart? Do not neglect to seek an answer to this great question. Do not let your eternity ride on presumption rather than on a personal knowledge that you have been born again. Believe in Jesus. Love him as the Son of God and find new life. That's the promise that he holds out to you. Let's pray.